Hi everyone, welcome to Mech and Matter. I'm your host, Clarice Chan, and today I'll be interviewing Dr. Tim Chambers, a materials science lecturer and lab supervisor at the University of Michigan. Hi Tim, thank you so much for coming on today. So let's start off by talking a little bit about your experience with science growing up. So I know you have a bachelor's and master's degree as well as a PhD in physics. So how did you first get interested in physics? And I guess as a follow-up, why material science? Yeah. Uh... <laughs> It's been a, a complicated path to get here, so I'll try to make it make a little sense. Um, growing up, you know, I, I read a lot of science fiction and like I watched Star Trek and all that. So that was the kind of the obvious end to being a scientist. And um, I took high school physics as a junior and I said, well, this is pretty good. Maybe this is the kind of science that I wanted to do because um, I had thought about chemistry or I had thought about engineering or, you know, all that. But uh, took a physics class and I liked it, so it just kind of stuck, and I I committed and I never looked back. So uh, I took a whole lot of physics classes, um, but as far as getting into material science, it was actually a complete accident. So I never like took any MSE classes. I did some work on electronic materials, working on semiconductors and such as a physics student. But I never really thought about it from a materials perspective. I was just playing with electrons, really. Uh, but then I graduated and it came time to get a job. And I said, well, yes, I need a job. And I just kind of started applying to like every department that looked good. And Michigan is great. And they accepted me for some reason. And so I just ended up in material science. And it's been super fun to have been here for the last six and a half years, just getting into the field in a way yeah so i guess what stuck out to you about material science and how did you i guess how did you learn about it um the the two things that really struck me about material science compared to what i had done in the past with physics or astronomy or so on um was that i felt like the field does a really good job of being balanced between pure science and applied science. There's always an application, there's always a practical purpose, but there's also always something sort of intrinsic and fundamental that we learn about atoms and molecules and really sort of underlying explanations for the, the macroscopic phenomena that we see. And having done a lot more of the pure science side of things in school, it was sort of refreshing to say, oh, yes, the stuff that we do actually matters and someone's going to make things as a result of what we learn in this field. So so I really liked that. Um, and then learning about materials for me has been a completely on the job sort of thing. I found myself in a materials lab and said, wow, there's a lot of tools here that like I have no idea what they do. I should probably figure that out. And it was a lot of working alongside students and saying, you're doing this project in your class. You don't know what's happening. I also don't know what's happening. We can figure this out. And that's something that coming from a teaching background was just very comfortable and natural to me is to say, let's figure this out together. Yeah. As a student in high school, I know you said you took classes, a lot of physics classes, um, but you also talked about being interested in like applied sciences. So how did you pursue your passion in physics at the high school level? As a high school student, um, there wasn't a whole lot of coursework available. And, you know, this was the 
early internet dark ages when we didn't have YouTube and silly things like that to be able to go learn about anything at a whim. I don't think Wikipedia even actually existed yet. I think that came out when I was in college. Anyway, old man rambling. Um, I did do a lot of reading. There's still, uh, you know, libraries and things like that. So reading a lot of science books just to see how different people thought about physics and how different people used physics, what kinds of problems they worked on. And that was sort of my way of getting to the, the practical and applied science side of things is to read about what physicists were doing and try to use that to understand how the field was useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess after high school, after college, um, I guess you could say three of the biggest routes for STEM students are industry, research, and academia. Obviously, mm -hmm. there's more, but I would say those are the biggest three. So I know you still do a lot of work in the lab, being a lab supervisor and teaching lab courses. So can you talk about your experiences in each of those routes and I guess why you ultimately chose to become an educator? Yeah, definitely. Uh, on the teaching side, starting really even in high school and just all the way through college and grad school and so on, I was always tutoring because it's a good way to make some money. And it's also nice to work with people and say, wow, I'm helping with someone. So to just have that combination of like, this can be a profession, but it also just feels good because you're doing something good for other people. That that made a lot of sense to me as a place to to go professionally. So when I had the opportunity to start teaching my own classes, then that was really when it cemented like, yes, this is what I want to do when I grow up, if I ever do. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of the easy one for me. As far as where to go with it, like, did I want to work in industry? Did I want to go into research? Uh, what, what might those other options be? Uh, internships were really the experiences that helped me decide that. Uh, I did a couple different internships as a college student, working on different projects, doing different things. And that really helped me understand, again, which, which types of work were most interesting and most rewarding to me. So that's one of those things that I would recommend for students in the audience is do an internship or two try different things and get that personal experience of how does this feel to me when I'm in that work environment trying to do something in a professional way instead of as a student. And so after all that, I was like, yeah, research, I mean, it's fine. It's a good thing to do, but research is more of my hobby work of like, I do a little bit of that on the side. It's not my primary focus. My primary focus really is teaching because out of the different experiences I've sampled, that's just what keeps calling me back. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. Um, I know internships, a lot of people can get them in college, but I feel like people don't really realize that that's how you should be deciding what you want to do in life, because that's the real experience that you get. You recently won the Thomas M. Sawyer Jr. Teaching Award um, for your impact on MSc students as you work as a lecturer and a lab instructor. So I guess what was your initial reaction after you found out that you won this award? Well, 
first, I had to actually thank my boss and be like, wow, you made this happen for me. But I say that very intentionally because, again, thinking of people who are early career getting into a work environment, whether it's starting at a company or a university or whatever, um, having a supervisor who looks out for you and wants to help your advancement is huge. That can make such a difference. So that sort of made me realize like, yes, the department, sort of the administration above me values me enough to want to see me get recognized for the work that I'm doing. And so that was, of course, very gratifying, but also a good indicator that the people I was working for were people I wanted to keep working for because they were trying to take care of me. So those reciprocal relationships are really important. Um, as far as sort of the, wow, I guess I'm a good teacher officially. It's nice, but it's also necessary to try to stay a little humble about these things because while there's a lot that I do believe I do right, I'm also fully aware that there are teaching skills that I have not quite got a good handle on yet. So it's a good reminder that I'm on the journey, but there's still plenty of journey ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you define what you do as a lab instructor, I guess, on a daily basis? And what role do you hope to play in material science students' studies and also their research? Hmm. The daily activities question is really hard because every day is different, which is one of the things that I do really love about this job. Um, the way we have things set up at Michigan, where I teach at uh, University of Michigan in Arbor, is that there is this sort of centralized teaching lab in material science that we have, but we don't have classes in there 24 seven. And so that facility is available to research users when there aren't classes using the lab. So while a lot of my work is teaching students or helping students with their sort of educational goals, um, some of it is also supporting research users and interacting with them. And that's where a lot of the sort of brain candy happens of like, wow, this is really interesting and weird and complicated. What are you working on? I've never seen something like that before. And so there's, yeah, some of that is just the dessert, I guess, that comes along with the job of saying, there's so much cool stuff that happens here. So many smart people are working on so many interesting projects. So that's, that is part of it. Um, and then on completely the other side, there's the stuff that I would describe as actual work. Someone has to order supplies. Someone has to make sure all the equipment's working. Someone has to clean the floor. Like it all needs to be done in order for this space to work for teaching and for research so that students can come in and accomplish things. So it's, it's kind of spread on this whole continuum of like the very intellectual and the very practical and all sorts of things in between. And for someone who likes a lot of variety, it's a really good option in that way. Yeah. What are some of the coolest projects you've seen in your time as a lab supervisor? Oh, boy. Well, I have some bias here. Like, I have some personal favorites that are because of my interests, right? And so it aligns with that. Um, the, the lab curriculum at Michigan is centered around the junior and senior year mostly because before that a lot of students are just taking prerequisite courses they got to learn physics they got to learn calculus they got to learn chemistry they got to 
you know, learn programming, they have to learn how to write. So all of these things need to happen. Um, but then junior year, we have a full year of advanced lab. And then senior year, there's a full year of design classes. So within that context, at the end of the junior year, sort of the final project for my class is a reverse engineering project. Students go out into the world, they choose a commercial off-the-shelf product that they're interested in for some reason. It's a hobby, you know, it's a passion, it's something that they bumped into at the grocery store and they're like, I wonder what that is. And they spend several weeks in the lab trying to figure out what is this commercial product? What's it made out of? How is it manufactured? Uh, what are its properties? What are potential applications that maybe haven't been considered yet? So a lot of my favorite projects come in that reverse engineering space because the students get to follow their own real, like self-selected genuine interests. So a few examples of that, um, we have a lot of students who do music, which is a big hobby of mine as well. So we've had students reverse engineer saxophone reads, for example. And like, that might sound really simple until you realize that their reads, they're organic, like this is made out of bamboo, which is a phenomenally complicated material when you start to think about it at a molecular level and how do its acoustic properties arise from the molecular structure of the different polymers that make up bamboo. So that was super interesting. Um, another one in a very different space was uh, I had a student who uh, had had back surgery several years prior to the class and had a rod put in for, for spine support and things got better, the rod got removed. And so the student had a, you know, a spine rod sort of lying around <laughs> and reverse engineering time came and they said, I have this metal that was in my body for several years. Can we figure out what it is? I'm like, yes, absolutely. Let's go. So yeah, just all over the spectrum. But those are a couple examples that I think illustrate some of the variety of what students are interested in, which is great. Yeah, that's that's really cool. So I know you teach MSc 360 and 365, um, the lab classes at UMich. So can you talk a little bit about your teaching philosophy and what it means to be a good teacher? Oh boy, that's a big question. So um, I mentioned the research thing earlier and there's an important connection here, which is the area where I do most of my research is more on, I guess what I'd describe as the cognitive science side of things. I study how people teach and learn science. So my data is looking at interactions between students and teachers, looking at how students perform on assessments, uh, things like that, so that we can develop better teaching practices that are more effective. That's the goal. But for kind of all of human history, teaching practice has been informed by, I think this is a good idea, which is a good start, but that doesn't actually tell you does this method work? Is this effective teaching? Or do you just believe it's effective teaching? And so disentangling that is my research area. Uh, so part of my teaching philosophy is certainly try new things. Like, let's experiment. Don't be afraid to say, I had something that might be a good idea. Let's see if this works for the students. But then it's also 
looking at the evidence. Did this actually help students more than other approaches you might have tried instead? So element one of teaching philosophy, use evidence-based teaching practices. But completely complementary to that, the second component is, as you may be aware, students are human beings. Like we're people, right? We have feelings, we have emotions, we have social needs. And for the vast majority of students, learning isn't happening in a vacuum. It's not, you know, the hermit on the mountaintop with some stone tablets trying to extract wisdom from them. It's you're in a class. And that is a very deeply social environment. So the other sort of main pillar of what I think good teaching looks like is leveraging that, making sure that people are being good to each other. You know, let's have a healthy environment where people can exchange ideas, where people can have the freedom to say, I might be wrong, but, and to, to put themselves out there. So balancing those two things of what do we know works cognitively, but also what makes a socially productive environment for people to engage with each other, as well as the content, trying to get those two things to work together is what it's all about for me. Yeah, I think that's really important as a student too. How do you promote this kind of like collaborative welcoming environment in your classes? What do you think is the best and worst thing about being a lecturer? So the best thing, I think I partly answered this already. I get paid to teach people. Like, how cool is that? That mm -hmm. I get to do something that I like, that is also my job, that is also good for others. That's kind of a unicorn. You know, there aren't a lot of jobs that are like that for everyone. So that really, even though maybe that's sort of a simplistic answer, I think that is the best part of it for me. Uh, and the reward there really is twofold. There's the, the sort of extrinsic, I am helping people, you know, others are getting further along their path because of hopefully something that I'm doing to help advance them and they need me. And so of course I feel valued and that's nice, but it is also just fun for me, not for everyone. Some people are like, I do not like doing this at all. And that's totally fine. If everyone liked exactly the same things, then the world would be worse off and boring. So there's, there's part one of my answer. What's the worst part? You know, some people would snarkily say grading, but I don't honestly feel that way because again, grades are data. Like this is how I understand whether people are learning or not. So digging into what students write and what they calculate and what they present to understand what they are and are not learning is, it's interesting. Mm. So looking at the professional structure of the university, this varies at different institutions. Different institutions have different rules. They have different administrative bureaucracy, like all that. Uh, so I guess the worst part of being a lecturer is that at most schools, including Michigan, once you get hired, it's not a permanent forever kind of job. It's a contract job. So it's like, okay, you get hired for a year or three years or five years, which if you're doing a good job, 
is usually not really an issue with job security. Like most people who are good at their job get rehired, but there's always just that little kind of lurking in the back. Like strictly speaking, I could be out of a job in three years, which I'm not practically worried about, but it does linger in the back of your mind just a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, something that is changing for the better in that area is that more universities are starting to create permanent or you know tenured or otherwise sort of secure full-time teaching positions which I definitely believe is the direction that we need to move societally but we're not there yet so your students have spoken really highly of you what do you hope that they take away from I guess your instruction in general your lectures um, and what is your goal as an educator and a mentor for these students? Well, what I hope they take away, this one is actually pretty easy. I'll say this the provocative way first and then explain what I mean. Don't trust anybody. Now, what I actually mean by that is realize that everyone has an agenda. We are all trying to advance certain causes. We're all trying to promote different things. And that's not a bad thing. That's just the nature of humans. Like we all have interests and we want to try to make sure that the causes that we support are, are noticed. But realize that everyone has an agenda. So whether they're trying to make money off of you or whether they're trying to convince you to believe the things that they believe or whether they're trying to get you to work in a certain way or whatever it is, you have to start from that to be critical about all of the data that you see as a scientist and as an engineer, because engineering is done by human beings or human beings. You know, we make products that people use. So you have to realize that even someone with the best of intentions is going to be at least unconsciously biased about what and how they choose to present information to you. And you have to filter what comes in, taking that into account to try to get at sort of the real underlying truth. So a lot of what I teach in that regard is about communication strategies and how people present data and how biases affect how people present data. Because if you want to be a great engineer, as opposed to just a good engineer, that has to be part of your toolkit. Mm -hmm. So I guess approaching life as a scientist, as a critical scientist is important to you? Yeah, definitely. When you're dealing with data, realize that bias is baked into it. Mm -hmm. What do you think is your favorite section or activity to teach? Um, and then also, what do you think your students enjoy the most? I'll start with the second question, because the answer is, and this is the answer to every MSE question. So for anyone who decides to go into material science, you're going to hear this a lot of times. The answer is, it depends. One of the things that's really cool about material science is different people come to it for very different reasons. Some of my students want to save the planet. Some of my students are just really interested in chemistry and they want to understand the chemistry of solids. Some of my students like 
want to be doctors or dentists. I actually have a student who's graduating this year who's going to dental school to do dental materials to make better um, like fillings and better tooth replacements. So what I think my students like the most is very different for different people. So my responsibility is over the course of that year, because I do essentially have a year-long lab class, is to try to hit as many different materials topics as possible so that everyone can find the thing that they resonate with and say, ah, that's the part of MSE that now I know I'm passionate about. That's where I want to focus my efforts and, and go in that direction professionally. So for some of them, it is biomedical stuff. And for some, it's uh, metallurgy. And for some, it is about coding and simulation and programming and modeling the world mathematically. So it's just really all over the place, which keeps the job interesting. You know, I'm not just doing the same thing over and over and over and over. That said, I do have a favorite part. So the answer to the first question was, I just love playing with metals. Like, I don't know why I couldn't point to something that happened in my childhood where I was like, and then I became passionate about metals. There, there was no obvious thing like that, but it's just, I think it's neat. You know, I, I do blacksmithing as a hobby. Like I have a forge at home because I'm that guy, I guess. And so one of my favorite parts of the year is where the students do a design project where they design their own aluminum alloy. So they're starting from elements. They have aluminum, silicon, copper, manganese, whatever else they put in. And they're starting from a theoretical basis of how do these elements behave? How do they interact with each other? But then taking that to an applied side of what will this be used for? There's so many uses for aluminum out in the world that the way you engineer an alloy for a bike frame versus for an airplane versus for like decorative railing, those are three completely different situations that are going to demand different properties, which means different processing and different manufacturing. And so you kind of work your way back the design chain from there. And so the students go through this process and they say, here's what I want to use it for. And here's the properties it needs. So here's how I'm going to try to make it. And then they go make it. And then it's just a really gross, hot, sweaty day because we're melting metal at like 800 degrees Celsius and it's glowing orange hot. And we're wearing the space suits for protection, like the, the metal, um, the metal coated suits to reflect all the infrared so that we don't cook. And, um, there's just some very, there's a really refreshing physicality about the work of, yes, I'm actually doing something real <laughs> with real stuff. Um, but it's also at the same time, very intellectual because we are doing this experiment and we are collecting data and we are making predictions and testing them. Um, and just seeing a stream of glowing hot liquid pouring out of a crucible into a mold and turning into an object is like it's pretty sick you don't get to do that in pretty much any other field so i do uh think of that as one of my high points of the year yeah for sure so it sounds like you have a very good relationship with a lot of your students 
you know, what their goals are, you know, where they're headed. Do you have some sort of inspiring figure or teacher that you had in previous years that kind of, I guess, encouraged you to become an educator yourself and kind of also inspired your teaching philosophy, your teaching methods? That's a great question. Going further back, I would say in high school, I was very fortunate. I had great teachers just across the board and not just in science, but like my Spanish teacher was incredible. My music teacher was incredible. Um, yes, my chemistry teacher was great. My physics teacher was great. Um, like even the soccer coach was awesome. So I don't know how I got so lucky to just end up at a school where all the teachers were great, but that definitely helped me believe like education is worthwhile. You know, this is something that it's not just I'm a nerd and I like learning things, which is true, but as a, you know, as a profession that really helped me with a lot of examples of not just what good teaching looks like, but how different good teaching can be, you know, not all good teachers do things the same way. There's many valuable and viable approaches to it. But then as I was starting to sort of become a teacher and I needed, I guess, professional role models, you know, someone that I could point to and say, ah, oh, I want to be like them. The two big ones that I would point to, uh, one is actually a professor at Michigan because I did my undergrad here. Um, so that's Tim McKay, who is in the physics department. And he was partly my first physics teacher in college. So of course I imprinted on him like a little duckling because that's what we do. Um, but he was a really good example of someone who used a lot of different teaching techniques in the classroom and was available to the students. That was such a huge takeaway is that if I needed his time and I said, hey, I need some help, he found a way to make time for me. And not just me, but really anyone in the class. So that was a big lesson for me is the importance of making, not just having an open door policy, but actually making it work and saying, yes, I will make time for my students so that they know I'm here to help them and really believe that. Then the other was uh, one of my advisors in grad school. So that's Ed Prather, who is at the University of Arizona. And he was the one who really helped me take all of the sort of evidence-based teaching practices that I got from being in the research side of things in the education research sphere and say, okay, but how do you actually do this in a classroom? Because closing that gap from theory to practice takes a lot of practice that takes time and effort and making mistakes and figuring out why what you did didn't work and figuring out how to do it better. And so he was really critical for me of getting from theory to practice and being able to do it in a classroom effectively. Yeah, I, I think role models are really important, um, especially in this field. I've heard from a lot of professors, they had a teacher or a set of teachers who really stood out to them. Um, and kind of inspired them to become a teacher themselves. So I think that's really important. I know you're also the advisor for the Bladesmithing Club. So going back to your 
passion with medals. Can you talk a little bit about that, what the club does, what you do as an advisor, um, and what you hope the club is to the students who participate in it? The thing that I'll point to first and just say, this is so great, is that as a student-run organization, the students actually run the organization. I don't want to say I don't do anything because that's not entirely true, but most of the leadership comes from the students themselves. They want this organization to exist. And so they've essentially created it out of nothing and figured out how to make it work and put in a lot of the time and effort and paperwork themselves to make this thing go. So I'm certainly very proud of them for that. But I think that's also part of what makes student-run activities special is learning those leadership, leadership skills, learning project management, learning how to navigate bureaucracy. Like these are all features of the world that we live in. And that's something that is not taught much or often or well in a lot of classes. So to have an opportunity to learn that and practice, I think is really valuable. So what I actually do mostly is just helping out on that sort of bureaucracy side, you know, figuring out how to get money to and from places and making sure that things are approved safety wise and, um, you know, just putting in phone calls to remind someone at some office like, hey, we're waiting on you to process this thing. So it's a lot of silly little things like that just to help stuff move more efficiently. A lot of the technical leadership in terms of the tools, the techniques, the physical skills, and then on the theory side, the metallurgy of compositions and heat treatments and how to work things. Um, a lot of that has come from the students as well. I've been fortunate that two of our students have a lot of already had a lot of experience before joining the club. And so they were able to bring that and teach their peers what they already knew, which freed me up to be able to be that supporting person behind the scenes, making sure things are safe, making sure that things are funded, you know, stuff like that. As far as what they work on, there's an annual conference in material science that's called TMS. It is a big annual gathering for lots of different kinds of materials people, and they have this competition, the bladesmithing competition, that really is intended for material science and engineering students. So that's kind of our annual big event as a club is the students will spend several months either making blades or doing technical analysis of their blades doing microscopy, doing mechanical testing, doing chemical analysis to really understand the science of their products and then going to the conference to present that as well as the piece itself, which really is, you know, I say this without exaggerating, it's a work of art. Somebody has put, or several somebodies have put dozens, if not hundreds of hours into just making this object that is both beautiful and functional. So there's a lot of pride that the students get to have in their work because they really make things and they also happen to learn along the way and maybe even they have fun doing it. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So you mentioned the bladesmithing competitions. So I guess what defines a good 
displayed and how how does material science relate to that yeah that's a great question because as i was saying a minute ago part of it is art does it look the way you want it to look and for competitions one way that this is often evaluated is from a historical authenticity point of view because for since before recorded history people have been making sharp things as tools and how different cultures have accomplished that at different times and places in history have varied tremendously so both as a test of skill for the students and also as a way to drive them to learn more about some of these traditional practices uh, competitions will often require students to try to produce something in a certain historical style and that could be anything from like a sickle from ancient Egypt a kopesh to a 16th 17th century arming sword from Europe to um like a uh, tanto that's a Japanese uh, short sword which is what my students made last year so really anywhere and any time as long as the students can say here's the historical precedent for this thing and here's how we've tried to learn about that and understand it and also create something that would look that would not look out of place if I were transported back to the 1200s or something and people said oh nice sword you have there it wouldn't be like what is this strange future metal that you were carrying around that it, it would it would be normal so that's part of how things are judged in terms of aesthetics as well as workmanship but then from a practical point of view that's where the engineering really does come in uh, and that's where you can tie it to a lot of material science and engineering core concepts of mechanical properties what is the hardness what is the toughness what is the stiffness uh, how strong is it? How durable is it? Like how well can it hold and retain an edge when it's being used? Digging down a little bit further, you can say, what are the microstructures in this metal? How are the different alloying components interacting with each other? What sort of bonds are present? I guess if you really wanted to dig all the way down to electrons, you could, but it would get pretty challenging mm -hmm. <laughs> at that point. Uh, so it's it's very holistic in that you're going all the way from the aesthetics of the piece to the sort of cultural and historical traditions that inform it to its practical usability as a tool and then finally how does the underlying chemistry and physics explain why it has those properties and therefore why people from a certain time and place found this thing to be useful and important to them yeah I guess I can see how the material science comes in with like actual usage and practicality of the blade. Um, can you talk a little bit about how material science can affect, I guess, how it looks? You talked about the art and the history part. There's a few aspects. Um, one is some of the really elaborate pieces that you'll see will be made of multiple different classes of materials coming together whether we're talking about natural materials or synthetic materials a sword isn't just a piece of metal it has usually wood 
There's usually cloth, sometimes there's leather, and even within metals, some of them are ferrous iron-based metals. You might have copper-based metals, whether it's brasses or bronzes. You may have other decorative aspects, inlays, foils. So from a material science perspective, being able to understand how those different types of materials will interact with each other and the material selection problem of what exists, how much does it cost? That's also a really important material property is can you afford the thing? Because you might say, oh yeah, if I made this sword out of like this crazy ultra modern nickel-based super alloy, whatever, it'll be indestructible. Yes, and then it'll also cost $10,000 and nobody's ever going to care. So you have to think about those things practically as well. Um, another piece that comes into it is when we're doing processing. That's another really important part of material science and engineering is not just the composition and what group of atoms do I have, but what do I do to those atoms to get them into their final state? Uh, that could be chemical processing, it could be thermal processing, it could be mechanical processing. So understanding, for example, if I'm hammering on it when it's really hot versus just kind of hot versus actually almost room temperature versus actually safe to touch, those are going to have very different effects on what's happening at a molecular level and to be able to understand what temperature range is appropriate for which kinds of physical work. That's something that blacksmiths have learned as a craft for thousands of years. And now finally we have the, the scientific understanding to be able to say why that works in addition to phenomenolo phenomenologically knowing that it does work. So to be able to bring all those things together the materials selection, the materials interactions, and also when we're processing this thing, heating it, quenching it, working it, to be able to have confidence that we're not damaging the material and that it's going to turn out well in the end. That is sort of how all these things come together. I saw that you taught an extraordinary materials workshop for younger students a few years ago. So why is outreach important to you? I have two completely different answers. One of them is I've been adopted into the material science field. You know, I didn't grow up as an MSE student. I didn't even know what existed until grad school, literally. Like I had never heard of it as a field until I was a graduate student. And I made a friend who was a material science major. And I'm like, oh, that's a thing that people do? Neat. So having been accepted into this community as sort of an outsider and they say, no, it's okay, you can be one of us. I really want to be able to extend that to younger students and say, there's this whole community of people who would love to meet you and work with you and help you learn about this field that we love if you're interested in that. And that's all of the sort of good warm fuzzy stuff which is true and then there's also a very like almost mercenary <laughs> practical answer is material science and engineering is a pretty small field it's not the smallest discipline of engineering but it's one of the small ones and we need to recruit people it's not like the entire world knows who we are and what we do and why we're important so just to be able to get the word out 
to be able to say, this is a thing that engineers do. This is a type of engineering and we want you to even know that it exists so that if you do decide you're interested in it, then you can kind of join the ranks. That's also a practical importance and necessity as well as being something that's fun and feels good. Yeah. Um, I know you created a materials tour for the UMMA uh, or the UMICH Museum of Arts. So what inspired you to do this, like to bring arts and materials together? Yeah, that was a blast to work on and credit where it's due for sure. A lot of the inspiration came from the people at the museum. We were contacted by one of the museum curators who said, hey, we'd like to do this exhibit. Would you be interested in collaborating on something like that? And I said, yes, that sounds awesome. So the fact that they were the initiators who said, we think this is a good idea. Does anyone else think it's a good idea? Really helped to motivate me. And I was very fortunate to be working with a group of grad students at that time who were very invested in outreach and really wanted our outreach program to succeed because there's no way I would have been able to do it by myself just in terms of hours and workload. It's the sort of thing that needs multiple people to, to carry the weight. And it was just the right thing at the right time where I had a group of students who were interested in teaching and interested in outreach and knew a whole lot about materials. Some of them like quite a lot more than I know. And that there was also an external person who said, we want this to exist, help us make it exist. I was more like playing the matchmaker at that time of saying, here's the people who really know the stuff and want to get it out there to the public. Let me help all these moving parts kind of come together so that we get a finished product out into the world, which is this museum tour. And shameless plug, there is a virtual version. So if you go to the University of, Mus University of Michigan Museum of Art website, you can still do the virtual materials tour and uh, read some of the content that we put together, see photos of some of the art pieces. Of course, it's not the same as being there in three dimensions, but it's still a way to engage. What called me personally, just in terms of my own interest to really want to do that was that in the last few years, somehow I turned into a history nerd. Like, I don't know, I never cared about history as a student because it was always go memorize these dates, come take a test, see you later, which is not what history is about at all. But I didn't appreciate as a student that history was way richer and more complex and more interesting than names and dates and places. So finding the connection between material science of how materials discoveries and how materials innovations have completely changed human society and human culture and enabled technologies that changed how people live to be able to work backward and say, how did we get here? It's 2022 and the world is very strange, but there's a story that leads to this moment and how is materials part of that story? That's just something that I've found completely fascinating for the last few years. And so to be able to uh, indulge in doing that for work for a little bit and say, here's something from like fourth century BC China. And also it's cast bronze. How did they even make it? Like, look at the detail work, look at the intricacies. There was some incredible 
not just craftsmanship, but technological innovation that made them able to make this thing and to understand what those innovations were and then to be able to communicate that to an audience of people in the past were really, really, really smart. There's this misconception that people in the past were dumb because they didn't know as much, but like we're running the same hardware. We've all got the same reins. It's not like anatomy has changed in the last 2000 years. It's just that there's more knowledge available, but the the intelligence and the cleverness and the problem solving abilities, people did some amazing things in the past with the limited knowledge that they did have. And I think we should recognize and respect that and also learn from it. What is your favorite food? Pizza. Favorite drink? Beer. Uh, favorite color? Green. Is that your favorite color to wear? Oh, my, my favorite color to wear is whatever's really loud. I like floral shirts. I like patterns. I like bright colors. What is your favorite hobby? Music. I love to just get into the studio and record stuff at the end of the day. Do you play an instrument? Um, many. Wow. But I, I'm a bass player at heart. It's, it's that being the foundation. It's being the support. It's saying, I'm going to make everyone else sound even better. That's just kind of how I am. That's, that's very cool. Um, and last question is, what is your favorite place to travel? Oh, boy. <laughs> Wherever I haven't been before. Mm. I totally just love to do new things. So mm. I don't think I've ever really gone to the same place twice because it's like I've been there. I want to <laughs> see something new. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that ends the speed round. Uh, I do have one final question, which is what do you hope the audience will take away from this conversation today? Um, I hope that people, if they only learn one thing, it's that material science and engineering is incredibly broad, that there are so many different kinds of problems that we work on and so many different kinds of people that we need to work on those problems, that whether you're interested in physics or chemistry or math or biology or geology or history or art or architecture, all of those have really important materials connections. And we need all of those toolkits to really be able to succeed as a, as a discipline. Yeah, that's really cool. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been great to be here.